This is Chicago's official radio home for Bulls, Bucks, and round one of the NBA playoffs on Sports Radio 670 The Score and on the Odyssey app. Ball game over. Bulls win. Bulls win. Bulls win. Live from the Hyundai Studios, presented to you by your local Hyundai dealers. We are WSCR and HD Chicago. WBMX HD2 Chicago. And Odyssey Station. The Score. Top of the hour is being brought to you by DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. And this hour is being brought to you by Vasectomy Clinics of Chicago. Ray, let's go. Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? I think anytime you go through what they have gone through, there's probably not a whole lot of scenarios and situations, whether it be home or on the road or being down or being up or execution late game or things defensively uh, their um, cohesiveness chemistry being together for a period of time there's just not a lot they haven't seen and I think that's where you get that experience from you get that confidence from is the more you go through through those things you, the more I think you learn to trust and rely on each other because you've all been through it together and you know you know what you have to do collectively That's Bulls head coach Billy Donovan talking about the mountain that the Bulls have to climb to take on the Milwaukee Bucks and win. That series gets underway Sunday here on The Score. Our buddy Jim Ozarski covers the Bucks for the Journal Sentinel. He's from here, though. He wrote a great piece about Giannis, which we will talk about. He joins me now on the Circuit Resort and Casino Hotline. Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. I've already talked with a Joe O. Now I'll talk with a Jim O. Hello, sir. <laughs> I, I Thanks, Lawrence. I'm good. That's a lot of consonants going on in back-to-back segments for you. Yes, there is. There, There <laughs> is. And, and so the goal is to not mix you two guys up. I, I, I'm putting you in charge of the Milwaukee Bucks and Joe in charge of everything else, which is usually the way it went when Joe was my executive producer. He was just in charge of everything else. And then my job was to show up and not be stupid. So I'm going to try to duplicate that here in my conversation with you. How are you, sir? Are you good? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. A little bit of springish weather, kind of, maybe, in our respective hometowns. So, yeah, I'm good. How have the Bucks? think about how their season ended like what what is their feeling about being the three seed in the east okay there's there's two parts to that that question so yes the the three seed um they're fine with that i realize there's a national talking head thing going on with the brooklyn nets and the bucks are trying to duck so that in in house i mean you played the clip from billy donovan there coming in lawrence and he's exactly right like there's they there's no fear of anything. There's no worry of anything or teams. Um, they would have been just as happy with the two as they were the three. Um, and they accomplished that by winning two of their last three games on a back-to-back against Boston and Detroit. Um, now, when you say how they feel about their season ending, it's interesting, Lawrence, because this team has been built around defense since the Mike Budenholzer era began. There is a conference title run or championship round run four years ago now um historic levels of defense those first two years last year a little bit of dip this year lawrence they're 25th in the league 
in defensive rating, which is for, for fans, it's points per 100 possessions. It's probably a more accurate way to, to, to measure defense. 25th since the All-Star break. Um, that's not good. <laughs> and their third quarter scoring differential is, I think, 24th in the league. Also not good. Um, so they've got some things they need to try to correct here going into the playoffs. So, of course, they say, hey, we're improving. We, we think it's going to get better. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's some issues that, that they need to resolve beginning with this series against the Bulls. Oh, okay, so how would they say that they've played in defensively over the last couple of weeks then as they're, they're winding down the season? Yeah, so, the, you know, they always preface it with the don't want to make excuses, but now there were two bench games, Clippers, Cavs, nobody played but the bench. They gave up like 130 points. But when you're talking about a, an 18-game run, I mean, that's not, a, that's not a big sample size, right? So I, I think offensively they're playing well. They're healthy. Drew Holiday is having a career type of season, career type of finish to his year, Lawrence. So I think in general, they feel good. I think 15 and six, maybe uh, since the, uh, their, their last, you know, 20 something games, um, you know, and again, a couple losses to some in these bench games type of thing. So they feel good in general. I think for them though, they know if they're going to win it again, which is their goal, the defense has to tighten up across 48 minutes, as opposed to say just the last two and a half. I want to ask you about last week's game because I'm, I was so frustrated by the way the Bulls played in that game, particularly because I thought the Bucks were trying stuff. You know, Giannis didn't really shoot. He was being a facilitator in the game. He didn't play heavy minutes. Neither did Chris Middleton. They, they were experimenting with Drew Holiday on, on first unit and second unit. I was really upset that the Bulls got blown out in that game because I felt like Milwaukee was looking at it as a scrimmage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think they'll, they would call it a scrimmage, but no, the Bucks for sure have experimented down the stretch. Brooke Lopez, George, George Hill, their kind of top backup point guard, uh, didn't, you know, they just came back against Utah, you know, uh, middle of March. So, you're right. I mean, they definitely have been experimenting with some stuff, and I think, and that's not to disrespect the teams they're playing. They did that against other teams other than the Bulls. But to your point, Lawrence, I, I mean, the fact that they were able to do some things like that and still handle the Bulls the way they did, um, to still keep Demar Derozan, you know, relatively clear of the free throw line. I know Zach didn't play, um, but I, yeah, it, it's tough. I heard well, we mentioned Joe O to start. I heard those odds, at, you know, in terms of the, the Bulls in this series, and I just don't know if they have anything for Giannis. I don't know if they have anything for Drew Holiday. Whereas conversely, I think the Bulls have something for, or the Bucks have something for the Bulls stars, you know. And and it's just, you know, the, the Bucks. I think, uh, you know, they're they're in that mode now, Lawrence. They're going to dial into that. We've won it. We want to do it again, so it, it's time to, to to button it up. How does Brooke Lopez change the floor geometry for them? Man, it's it, it's hard to say. It, I mean, it's hard to quantify. Um, he's he's so underrated to non hardcore basketball fans, and I don't mean to to, to go Tony Larusa there <laughs> on people, but it's it, but even the players here say that. 
because he's just so huge, Lawrence. Like it, it's he's like a seven five wingspan, and he can still move. So that the idea of of staying connected to say Demar Derozan at eighteen feet while still keeping Patrick Williams from being able to get to the rim, like even Giannis is like, I can't do that. Like the way Brooke does it, it's just different and it's bigger. So that so you say geometry there, Lawrence. That allows that allows Giannis then, as a help side defender, to like if you want to whatever angle then he wants to take to go get that ball off the rim. He's free to do that. That, that you know he, Lopez is that access point all the way around. Um, you know even out to Drew Holiday if he wants to pick up you know Demar at, at half court. Hmm. He just makes them better. And you know that I'm in the Drew Holiday for President Society. I think he's such a good player. I I love the matchup problem that he creates for a lot of teams. I hate the matchup problem that he creates for the Bulls. How important is he to what the Bucks want to do in going back to back? Yeah, it's uh you know it's funny. Lawrence, so he was acquired at the start of last year, and the bar they set as a group with Drew is a championship. So that that seems ridiculous to say, like, all over Peter win again, but he couldn't make anything last playoff, Lawrence. I mean, when I say anything, he was doing like 36% the entire playoff, or like 30% from three. Um, and, it, and his play actually, in hindsight, um, declined a bit the last month of the season. So maybe you can look back and say, oh, we saw this coming. Well, conversely, Lawrence, he is on an upward trajectory um, offensively. Career high at three points. He is scoring more than Giannis in the fourth quarters of games. He has become this sort of closer in the last month or so. Um, one of the most biggest fourth quarter scores in the league in, since the break. Um, and almost averaging a double double with assists. So, yeah, Lawrence, he's um, he's at. I think he scored twenty points a game one year in, in, in New Orleans. So I'm not trying to say he hasn't been this guy, but with this team, who are you going to devote resources to? It's Giannis, and let's be real, Chris Middleton. And then so Drew tends to get the benefit of of those matchups. Or look, Io has had a great year. He took Iowa to school a few times this year, Lawrence. I mean, and Kobe White. Like, you know, there, there's a difference there, and you're right. That's a huge matchup, not just this series, but even going forward for Milwaukee. Your piece in the Journal Sentinel about Giannis I thought was incredible, and I think that he's becoming someone who's becoming bigger than just a basketball player. What made you decide that you wanted to do a piece about Giannis and him, his exploration of himself and his mental health. Yeah, so it uh, so quickly for fans, they might re- recall ego, pride, humility. He had this great sort of moment of why, how he approaches his ego during the NBA Finals last year. Bears fans might recall Matt Nagy mentioning this in training camp. Um, and it has spread beyond that. I mean, I, I couldn't get into the global stuff, Lawrence, because in, in Greece, it was just too hard to manage. But nationally, I mean, teachers are putting it in classrooms. CEOs say this is the way, you know, we need to lead. Um, NFL tight ends are like, this is, you know, uh, changing the way I try to approach 
my time on the bench when the defense is on the field. Like it's it's sort of moved beyond um, sport in that way to where you can it's applicable. You can teach it. It's not like a you know Giannis can dunk and Euro step three three strides from half court. None of us can do that or truly understand it. We can understand trying to live in today and appreciate the moments. I, I would hope that the pandemic has maybe emphasized that to a degree, but yeah, Lawrence, um, it just sort of, and, and the reason I, I wanted to explore it now was because yeah, nine months later, like people are still talking about this. They're still trying to apply it and do it. And so I had to talk to Giannis about it. He didn't know. He's not like, he's one of those guys who like, when he says he's not on social media, like he's not, you know, it's not him posting that stuff. Um, so he was like blown away by it. And then also to try to stay humble, Lawrence isn't sure he should be that guy. Like, should people look at what I say and follow me, which, you know, this like conversely that attracts people like, wow, he's not, he's speaking his own truth. He's not trying to get us to do something or to buy something. It, it comes across as very authentic and, and wide, wide ranging. The more I, I hear or read about Giannis, the more I feel like he made a wonderful decision on staying in Milwaukee, that he gets to be the superstar of superstars in the NBA. He's the best player in the league right now. And he still gets to have what I think is a low profile if one can be the best player in the league and have a low profile. Yeah, it's it's true, Lawrence, without a doubt. Um, I mean, look, I was just at a, you know, a personal level. I was just at the eye doctor this morning, and guys in, in the doctor's like, oh, yeah, I ran into Giannis, uh, you know, at a local uh, at a local establishment, you know, and he was watching his, his partner play sand volleyball, just hanging out with, like, all the other partners watching their <laughs> their person play sand volleyball. Um, he's just and, – and, and, look, Milwaukee's maybe small enough that, like, when people see him, it's kind of like, oh, there's Giannis, yay, but we'll leave him. I mean, I know if it's a huge market, Lawrence, you can be that too. Like, in L.A., what's one star versus another 800, right? Right. But you're right. In Milwaukee, though, it's that – there's no cameras. There's no all that other stuff. Yeah, it it's, uh, it suits him. And then he could. And honestly, Lawrence, I think that's why he can. Um, I don't want to project too much, but but speak the way he does or feel the way he does because it can be an earnest conversation and something that he's allowed to expound on and, and really get into. Um, and it be like consumed and taken in. It's not parceled out. Um, some of that's our fault. You know this, Lawrence, in our business. Um, we're looking for the sound bite or the clip or, you know, some people might say click eight for lack of a better word. But that's, yeah, I think all of that suits him. And he's obviously been able to grow and still be, a, you know, being a big endorser, buying the baseball teams and have all the stuff guys like that can get, but also kind of still stay normal as possible. I want you to know before I ask this question that I don't think the Bulls can beat the Bucks in a seven-game series. In fact, I'm probably going to take Joe Ostrowski's advice and, and, and bet the Bucks minus two and a half on the series. But if there was a way for the Bulls to beat Milwaukee, what way would it be? Uh, game one Sunday, for sure. The Bucks in, in recent history, um, even last year, they rarely play well in game ones. Um, the one game they won last year, Chris Middleton hit a buzzer beater against Miami. 
Um, so this is home and road. For whatever reason, this group just comes out rusty <laughs> in game ones. And look, the first time they played here, Pfizer Forum, it went down to the wire. DeMar DeRozan went to the free throw line 18 times. Um, so game one, for sure, Lawrence, because the Bulls are a good team. I mean, they're not – I understand how it ended. Let's not be totally dismissive of what they can do. Um, so I think game one is a big one. And it, within that, as I said, if, if they're going to sneak another one or maybe lose game one but win game three or four, whatever it may be, it is the free throw line. I mean, after that first game, the Bucks made such an effort, Lawrence, to not foul DeMar DeRozan, to not foul Zach Levine. Um, and it's worked. I mean, it, it, DeMar didn't get to the line at all in, in games two and three. And then the eight times in that last one we just talked about were kind of, you know, I mean, there was a three-point play, a four-point play maybe. I mean, they weren't like him just getting to the line for two all the time. So that would be the other way the Bulls can, can win is DeMar's got to – and Zach have to get to the line. And then, of course, there's the foul trouble on the other end for the Bucks. As always, sir, I thank you for your time. The piece that you did on Giannis is really great, and, and I would recommend to everyone. I retweeted it. It's in my timeline on Twitter, at Lawrence W. Holmes, if you want to check it out. But just check the, the Journal Sentinel, and you'll see Jim's byline, and you can see all the great work that he's done covering the Bucks this whole time. Thanks so much. Uh, when this series wraps up, or if this series gets tight, I would like to have you back on. That'd be fantastic, Lawrence. Anytime. That's Jim Ozarski from the Journal Sentinel. He's a good man and thorough. We enjoy having him on the show. Ray, he gave like, okay, like if you wanted to, if you were uh, hope peddling, if you, I was shocked at what he said when I asked him how could the Bulls win this series, and now I go, okay, win game one. Sounds easy enough. It's great. Look, he gave us some hope. I certainly have been feeling a little low. Even though I'm wearing my Bulls cap today. You are. You know, I'm trying to be supportive here. So he gave us a little hope there. And if it all goes to hell, we have somebody to blame. Facts. So the Bulls need to punch the Bucks in the mouth. And, I mean, Grayson Allen has the most punchable face ever. But they need to punch him in the mouth figuratively in game one if they want to have a chance in this series. Otherwise, it's night-night. Because that's probably what's going to happen to them. We need to take a break. When we come back, there's a couple things I want to get into. And I want to I want to reach out to you, the Cub fan, in the next segment. I ran into some incredible Cubs content over the last day. And I wanted to share it with you. One is about Seiya Suzuki. And there's a former Cub who says Seiya reminds him of a teammate. You'll be interested in who that teammate is. I will share it with you next here on The Score. Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score. The score. And 670thescore.com. And Odyssey Station. It's time for the Cubs Minute. Chicago Cubs baseball is on the air. Fly the W! Wrigleyville fans are awesome. Great food. It's, you know, it's tough to beat. Cubbies. The Cubs Minute on the Lawrence Holmes Show. It's game two of a brief two-game series between the Chicago Cubs and the Pittsburgh Pirates. 
Contreras drives one in the air, deep center field. Back goes Reynolds to the center field fence. It's got a chance. Gone. He drives one in the air, deep right field. This is trouble all the way back. And a three-run home run for Ben Gamble. And he hits a drive, right field deep. Back toward the wall is Suzuki at the fence. It's off the wall and bouncing away. Two runs are going to score. And Newman is going to end up at third with a standing triple. Suzuki hits a little looper, shallow center field. That's a base hit. Rounding third, heading home. Contreras, he will score. Suzuki leads. There he goes. VR strikes out swinging, and the ball game is over. A curveball got him. The Pirates win it by a score of 6-2. Kyle Hendricks did not have his best stuff yesterday. He got beat up real bad. Three and two-thirds, seven hits, six earned runs, four walks, four strikeouts. Fastball command. We're going to talk about it every time that we talk about Kyle Hendricks. Can he spot his fastball? Yesterday, the fastball got up, and the Pirates took advantage. The Cubs need to win every game against the Pirates. Pirates are terrible. But yesterday, Key Brian Hayes was a problem for them. Four for four, had a double, scored a run. There was the situation that led to the three-run homer was an infield hit by Hayes and then a walk. And then you end up with Ben Gamble and his three-run homer. That bomb that Contreras hit yesterday was, whoo, like it sounded good. It sounded good off the bat. It went a long, long way, but the Cubs lose 6-2. to two. Yesterday, I was in class, so Mondays and Wednesdays, I teach over at DePaul. I leave here, and then I go over there, and I talk with the students, and we're, we're talking about content creation. Like It's a big portion of what we do in the class, and I talk about how there are different ways to create content and showed them some examples from around the sports universe. Like I showed them a clip from first things first, and I showed them a clip from the sec networks, Twitter account, a bunch of different things. But I also ran across this piece of content that I think you will like. And I told my students, I will bring it back to the show yesterday on MLB network. Mark DeRosa, former Cub, was breaking down Seiya Suzuki. And so this is a TV segment. And I said to Ray, Ray, can we turn this into it being still something that the radio audience can enjoy? And Ray was like, watch this. So he went into the booth and did his magic. Take a listen to who Mark DeRosa thinks Seiya Suzuki reminds him of. This is his first at bat in the big leagues. And I want you to look at who's on the mound. Corbin Burns, the NL Cy Young Award winner. Okay? Who's got a two-seamer at 96, a cutter at 96, a slider that he shapes off that, a change-up. He's got every weapon in the book at his disposal, every pitch. Situation, man on second, bottom second. You want to endear yourself to the Wrigley faithful. You're thinking, I got to be aggressive. He's going to want to be aggressive in the strike zone. I got to match him and be aggressive. I got Jason Hayward on deck. Let's see what happens. Ian Happ just hit a double. First pitch right here. Little cutter, 96 away. He was probably taken all the way. Pause it. So now I'm 1-1. I was taken all the way. First pitch, spit on it, ball. I want to see what your heater plays like in the strike zone at 94 miles an hour. I take it. I'm now 1-1. Let's go to work, 27. 
I mean, Ted gives him a call right there, which I don't mind. He's 1-2, and now he does not come outside himself. How do you not swing at that pitch right there? And I'm 3-2, back that up. I'm 3-2 in a big spot in Wrigley early, and I'm willing to spit on the NL Cy Young Award winner's best pitch last year, that nasty cutter, which he dirt balls a little bit, but still, how do you not swing? in that situation, and he's able to move on. He's really comfortable in the box. You see yesterday, really a powder keg of power. Rack that back for me real quick. 3-2, you hear me say all the time, the great hitters can go line to line, right? They don't do one thing and do one thing well. They give themselves a chance to all parts of the park. Anyone who's been in the box against Jose Quintana knows his fastball, even though he's had a little struggles lately. His fastball's got some late life on it, some late ride on it. So you don't want to be thinking dead pull. Say a Suzuki, fifth game in the big leagues, oppo in PNC. Getting on top of a high cheese right there. Just an absolutely gorgeous swing. Two-hand finish, which you don't see that often. And driving it out to right center, he's going to get another one right here on another lefty. Tries to go heater in. Run that back for me real quick. Heater in, watch him pull his hands inside right here. Nice and slow. Everything behind this baseball. So when I see his setup, I see him in the box and I see him setting up. I see where D. Ross has got him hitting in the lineup. He looks like an RBI guy. He looks like he can hit pretty much anywhere he wants to in the lineup. It got me thinking about a player in a Cubs uniform that every time he came up to the plate, he just did some damage, and that's Aramis Ramirez. Very similar setup. Rammer had that one one-arm finish, and I just think back to one of the greatest games I ever was a part of. 5-4 Milwaukee, and Aramis Ramirez hits the walk-off homer right there to kind of get us going. But Seiya Suzuki, pretty special. I know, minimum 15 plate appearances. We're really small sample size. That was Mark DeRosa on MLB Network yesterday. That's high praise. Aramis Ramirez's career as a Cub, I find fascinating, partially because I... I think there's an argument for he is the greatest Cubs third baseman of all time. I know that there are some people who find that to be sacrilege. I don't. Aramis Ramirez's nine seasons with the Cubs, his slash line, 294, 356, 531. Aramis Ramirez as a Cub was an 887 OPS. OPS plus, Anything above 100 is good. Anything below 100 is bad. He was 126 for his career as a Cub. He was a 115 for his career overall. You know, the years in Milwaukee and had the years in Pittsburgh. Was it was it him and Randall Simon that, that, that those Cubs teams ended up getting in that trade? But if D-Row is already seeing Seiya Suzuki as Aramis Ramirez... That's really good. It doesn't look like it's taken him a long time to get used to major league velocity, which was one of my concerns. Now, look, the pitchers are going to put a book together on Suzuki. And there are going to be some lulls. I I mean, statistically speaking, there are going to be some lulls. But what I see at at the plate so far is a really patient hitter that's learning with every single at bat. And I think his RBI single yesterday came on the first pitch. So 
in ambush situations yesterday after being super patient at the plate. I think this is a smart dude, man. And seeing D-Row say that about him yesterday, I'm like, okay, we need to file that and hold on to that. Because that is in, if, if you're a Cub fan and his offensive Cubs career turns out to be an 887 OPS, that means he's going to the Hall of Fame. Now, Ramos's career OPS is 833, which won't get you into the Hall of Fame, but it does get you into the Hall of the Very Good, which I believe is in Poughkeepsie. Usually, if you can be above 850, that's when you end up in the Hall of Fame. Speaking of which, well, not the Hall of Fame, but Aramis Ramirez, Ray, you went and found the 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 hit that D-Row was talking about? Oh, yeah. June 29th, 2007. I remember I missed it. Because at the time, I was just trying to break into this business, and you know how that goes. I'm working like three or three jobs at that time, so I didn't really have a chance to see anything live, sporting-wise, unless it was at night. So this this was a day game. And now a one-run ball game. Last chance here. It's Ramirez. Fontano still at first. The pitch to Aramis. There's a drive. Deep left center. Cubs win. They win. Yeah. One of Mark DeRosa's best memories as a Cubs player. And I'm sure a lot of Cubs fans feel the same way. Yep. No doubt about it. So along with that Cubs content, I ran into some really good content on my drive to class. Because yesterday the Cubs were playing in the time slot. So, you know, I was at home. So I, I drove in and I was listening to Pat and Ron. Doing play-by-play for baseball is an art form. It truly is. And when a game gets out of hand and yesterday's game got out of hand with the Cubs, then you have to still make it entertaining. Pat and Ron did that yesterday. For me, like I was listening to them, and this is where I love baseball play-by-play. I'm a sucker for it. I love radio play-by-play in particular because there's the opportunity to get a history lesson. And yesterday... We got a great history lesson about one of the best players who ever lived. The great Henry Aaron made his big league debut this date in 1954 for the old Milwaukee Braves. Hammer and Hank was 0 for 5 in his big league debut. I remember something that Bob Euchre told me. When Henry Aaron was in the minor leagues, he had his hands reversed crossed, yeah, crossed, yeah. so that his left hand was above the right mm-hmm. hand. And he's a right-handed batter. And if, without even having a bat in your hand when you try to do that, it just seems very awkward. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know how you could finish the swing. There's, you know, But it's how he did it originally as a kid, I'm sure. And then finally they moved his hands the other way. And he went, wow, boy, I can really hit now. <laughs> I guess he could. Here's a pitch outside the count, two and two. Only 755 home runs, 3,000 plus hits. No big deal, right? Oh, amazing. Unbelievable. 755 home runs. And the 2-2 on the way. Low and inside for a ball. He was in our booth up in Milwaukee when I worked with Bob Euchre. He would come in every once in a while, so I got to meet him there. I got to meet Henry several times when Dusty Baker managed the Cubs. Dusty and Henry were very close. Mm -hmm. And when the Cubs were in Atlanta, 
one of the first things I always do is go into the manager's office just to get the Cubs lineup right. and uh, visit briefly with the manager, and then I get out of the way. Mm-hmm. But so many times, Ron, what a great thrill. You go in, there's Dusty with Henry Aaron swinging a foul out of play. And I would say, oh, I'm sorry, guys, didn't mean to interrupt. And Dusty would say, no, no, come on, come on, you can meet Henry Aaron. Yeah. Right. Really? Yeah, it's really cool. And he was very nice. Yeah. I had a chance to meet Henry Aaron in New York. In They were, so the New York Yankees for their their old-timers game, they, they invite some players to come and as special guests. And the three special guests that day, Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, and Ernie Banks. Mm. Chopper foul right side. Had a chance to just sit in the dugout with them three and just talk to the three of them. Get a chance to meet Willie Mays also that day. And I had known Ernie. That was a year after I'd played in Chicago. And what a thrill. Yeah, that would be a thrill. How old were you at the time? I was playing for the Yankees 2002, so I was 36 years old. Swinging a foul back, and I'll bet there was a part of you that day that felt like you were 11. Oh, yeah, you were right back to being a fan. That's mm-hmm. the elite of our game and the history of our game all sitting there right in front of you. The great Pat Hughes and Ron Coomer talking about Henry Aaron. Dude. Think about like put. I want you to try and put yourself in Pat's shoes first, okay? You walk into Dusty's office and Henry Aaron's sitting there. I would have just froze. And what's the piece of history connecting those two men? Ray, do you know? You got to school me on that one, Lawrence. When Henry Aaron passed Babe Ruth with home run number 715, Dusty Baker was on deck. Talk about that is like a, like all the things that Dusty has done, like in his life, like that's pretty awesome. You got to see that up close. Then you go to Coom Dog. Coom Dog's out here like, yeah, I ended up playing. In, I I got a chance to see a, a Yankees game, an old-timers game, when they brought in Aaron Mays and Banks. What? These are the types of stories that baseball broadcasting lends itself to I am a sucker for these like what do you like what do you mean like they were just there like three immortals just happened to be there and you got a chance to talk to them it's insane man I have a, uh, when I was doing, I was doing a national show at 120 Sports, which is now Stadium Sports. My old partner, Dylan McGordy, his dad, huge baseball fan. So shout out to, to Papa McGordy. For my birthday, he gave me a photograph. Like this isn't like some still, like this is like a, an actual photograph of Jackie Robinson playing at Wrigley. The year that he was MVP so was at 49 when Robinson was MVP. I'm going to see if I can, because I got a lot of stuff, stuff in boxes right now. I'm going to see if I can find that to share it with you tomorrow. Like I'll send it to Connor for Jackie Robinson day. Like it's amazing. This is, it's Jackie Robinson, man. He's just there. He's just 
It's a picture of Jackie Robinson just being right there. I get hyped about stuff like this, Ray. I love this type of stuff. And hearing Pat and Ron do that yesterday, oh, it just it felt amazing. I wasn't even there. I wasn't the one that met Henry Aaron. I wasn't the one that, that met Henry Aaron and, and Willie Mays and Ernie Banks. I actually have met Ernie Banks. But I wasn't the one that was in that situation. And I was like, man, damn. It feel, must must be good to be coom. Like having that in your back pocket. Yeah, there was that time when, you know, I got to talk with Henry Aaron and Willie Mays and Ernie Banks. Oh, really? That's great. When we come back, I have come to a conclusion on check swings. I'll share with you next here on The Score. Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. As I get older, there are things that I'm tired of. And I'm really tired of check swings. Not the check swings themselves, but discerning whether a check swing is a strike or not. So I've come to this conclusion. In watching baseball games now, every check swing is a swing. It's literally in the name. Check swing. And, you know, you have to go through the art of, well, he didn't turn his wrist over. The bat head didn't go in front of home. No. Every check swing is a swing. Let's just call them all strikes. You swung at it. You swung at it. And I know that there are going to be times when that hurts my team. And I don't care. If it's more than a flinch, if it's more than like a guy like just going forward, then it's a swing. You swung at it. If we were playing in the sandlot, we'd be like, man, you swung at that. You swung at it. You were fooled. You were swung at it. You swung at it. But I'm just so tired of, well, now we've got to go to this angle. And let's take the angle from the third base camera. And that that shows, oh, that, that's totally a check. No. If you, if you check swing, your ass swung at it. L- like, let's just get rid of that. Like, let's be done with it. Be done with it. If it's more than like a tick, if you like that guy didn't have a tick, he swung the bat, they swung it, and it's a strike. And then we can all just move. Don't appeal down to first base or appeal down to third base because those dudes don't know. They weren't looking that closely. And because of the way it is, everyone can be wrong. So let's just make it a universal rule. It's a swing. That's it. I'll talk to Matt Spiegel on the Parkinson Spiegel Show about all of that next here on The Score.